Turn in your Bibles to 1 Peter. 1 Peter chapter 2. We'll be reading in verse 4 in a moment here. 1 Peter chapter 2. I thank Pastor for the privilege of letting me preach here this morning, giving him a break. We so appreciate all that they do for our church, how he opens the word for us every Sunday. Let's pray first. Our Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for your love and your kindness towards us. We thank you for giving us your scripture. And I pray that you'll please bless us today as we look at it together. I pray that you'll help me to say what you would have us hear. Um, Give me liberty. I pray your Holy Spirit would anoint the message, would anoint your word, and that you would give us ears to hear. I pray that you would be glorified today and that we would all find something with which to chew on and grow closer to you through the message given today in Jesus' name. Amen. Our passage that we're about to read today describes a great building and an incredible privilege. The building is the living temple of God, grander than Solomon's temple of old. And the incredible privilege is for common Gentile Christians like us, like you and me, the privilege for us to become priests in that temple. And not just any priests, but royal kingly priests. In our days, these two concepts are foreign to our minds, to most of us. Those of us who may have grown up in church, maybe that's more familiar to our imagination. But for many of us, the idea of a temple or a priest is foreign to us. Has anyone ever really been to a temple Or seen an actual real temple? Has anyone seen a real priest offer real sacrifices to abate what they believe is a real God? The people in this passage who it was written to would have seen that. They would have known what it was talking about and they would have caught the wonder and the wow factor, if you will, of being themselves able to be a living stone, able to be a temple, able to be a holy priesthood as the title of our message. So to try to recover that wowness for you, let's let's do a thought experiment. Let's think of something together here. If you've been to U.S. Bank Stadium in Minneapolis, you have seen a great building This year I got to go on a tour. I also got to attend one of the preseason games at U.S. Bank Stadium. Now, this is the largest building in Minnesota. It's a big deal. It's a huge building. Probably all of us have at one point or another driven past it and seen how big it is on its site in Minneapolis. In fact, one interesting piece about This is the doors. I'm just fascinated by the largest freestanding glass doors in the world. Each door is 55 feet wide and between 75 and 95 feet high. They weigh 40,000 tons between the four doors. Massive. They're on hydraulics. It takes minutes for them to open. And each of them, in all, they use 30,000 square feet of glass. Enormous engineering feet. So this is a grand building that you could imagine going in and being awed by being part of that building. If you had been a builder working on the construction of that, that would be a proud accomplishment for you. If the stadium is similar to the grandeur of a temple... Being able to join the team or have a close relative on the team would be similar to being made a royal priest. 
talk about access. I got to see the former players' lounge. So if you had ever played for the Vikings, you can sit in this lounge. And it's quite nice, perfect seats, all the amenities that you would want. And you, if, you were, if your son had been drafted on the team or traded all of a sudden, instantly from being an outsider with no interest necessarily in what the Vikings do, all of a sudden you're on the inside. You're given tickets to every game. You, you can go as close as you want to go to the experience. Um, that would be access. Now, when the Super Bowl comes to Minneapolis this year, and, and of course some of us hope that the Vikings are there for that too, um, the events that happen in U.S. Bank Stadium might come close to the real wonder that we should think of when we read of the temple in Scripture. They come close, but not really anywhere near what we see in Scripture. The dedication of the temple and Solomon's great prayer, if you read the first few chapters of 1 Kings, if you read um, in 1 Chronicles as well, some of the greatest parts of the entire Old Testament is Solomon's prayer. He offers over 120,000 animals as sacrifices for the dedication of his temple. It took seven years to build his temple. And um, the fact, as far as comparing construction costs go, Solomon's way outweighs U.S. Bank Stadium. U.S. Bank Stadium costs $1.1 billion. Um, Just the silver and gold in the temple of Solomon would have cost over $400 billion. 400 times just for the silver and gold, which can be counted, there is 112 tons of gold used, 262 tons of silver used in the construction of Solomon's temple. And then they said they could not keep track of how much bronze. Too much to even know how much that there was used let alone the choicest wood that was cut down in the choicest forests and carted hundreds of miles to the site where it could all be put together. Seven years to construct that. Solomon gets all these people in this gigantic amount of sacrifices. The whole congregation of Israel is there. Priests are singing. Priests are blowing trumpets. Priests are praising God. A whole bunch of people have to help kill all the animals. And then Solomon prays and fire comes down from heaven and burns the sacrifices. And then the glory of God fills the temple such that the priests cannot even be in there. It's so full of the glory, the visible Shekinah glory of God. The Super Bowl doesn't even scratch a a match to that. That is just amazing we, in a similar way, are being invited and called in this passage to participate in that wonder, to be able to be one of the players, not just the little guy at the very end of the outside of the congregation kind of peering over the shoulders, but one of the priests who is helping with the sacrifices, one of the priests who is singing the praises right up front next to Solomon. That is who we are supposed to envision ourselves as being. So let us go to our text here with that proper view in mind. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 4. As you come to him, which is Jesus, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe. But for those who do not believe, The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. 
They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. There's a lot in these verses, and this has long been one of my favorite passages of the New Testament. And so I'm just going to jump right in. But to help you out with the outline, um, I will share this outline on social media if you want to get it from me later. Um, But the four main points are preparation, the preparation of holy priests. So there's the preparation, and then there's the peril of holy priests, the privilege of holy priests, and then finally, the purpose of holy priests. Think of yourself today as a holy priest. We're all together here gathered before God as holy priests. So first of all, the preparation. And what I'm taking that is there's a mix of metaphors here, and you can't blame Peter for doing that. Um, it's when you start talking about the greatness of what God has done for us, you, you run out of metaphors. And so he starts by saying that we are building up the actual house, the spiritual house, the temple. And then he says that we're the priesthood in the temple. So I look at verse 5 and it says, You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood. So I'm taking this idea of the spiritual house as what it is to prepare you to be a holy priesthood. It's basically two different ways of looking at this, um, two different metaphors. But we'll look, first of all, at the building metaphor. So the first point in the preparation is that Christ is our cornerstone. We see in verse 4, we come to him, a living stone rejected by men. So first, this cornerstone is called a living stone. That in and of itself should make us stop and go, what does he mean, a living stone? I've never seen a stone that lives. Every stone that I've ever seen is dead. But Jesus is alive. He's the living stone. There could be several different concepts behind why the stone is called living. The most basic is that Christ is living. And so to use an, if he's the stone, he's living because Christ is living. He rose again. The very nature of Christ is one who is living. But we'll see that some verses in Exodus play a key role in what Peter is thinking of here in Exodus 19. And just a couple chapters before, when he gives these special titles to the people of Israel, a couple chapters before, those same people of Israel were at the brink of death. They had been rescued from Egypt, and they're in the desert, and I mean a desert, desert, desert. There's thousands of people, and there's no drops of water left. What do they do? They stand before a rock. Wouldn't you do that? They stand before a rock, and the priest of God, Moses, standing as a mediator, he takes a stick and he hits the rock. And out of the rock flows enough life-giving water to rescue all of the people of Israel to where they had no more water troubles at all. So that rock, 1 Corinthians 10, verse 4, says that rock was Christ. And even in Deuteronomy, in, in chapter 32, you can read about how the rock followed them and the rock was called Jehovah to them. They, they personified the rock at a couple places in their travels. They went to a rock, probably the same rock, and got water from it. So there was this understanding that the rock typified something greater than itself. It wasn't just a dead rock. It was a living rock. And the rock saved them. And, of course, in the New Testament, we see that the rock pictured Christ. Christ 
is that rock. He's the living stone. He's the one that from the smiting of Jesus' side on the cross of Calvary flowed water and blood. And that from that water and blood, we find purification and the giving of eternal life to those who believe in him. So Christ is the cornerstone. He's a living stone. He's also chosen and precious. Verse 4, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. So God the Father looks at God the Son, the living stone, and says, I'm going to choose you, your choice, your precious to me. And in the quote that is given here in verse 6 there's a quotation and some of your bible translations will set that apart and put parentheses around or quotation marks around it it says whoever believes in him in this cornerstone chosen and precious will not be put to shame and that quote is from the greek version of isaiah 28:16 the Greek version adds the words in him into, into that context. So we're supposed to come to this cornerstone and believe in the cornerstone. Not just believe, but believe in the cornerstone. Believe in Christ. So Christ is our cornerstone. Now we draw near to Christ. Verse 5 or verse 4, the first part of that. As you come to him. In the context the book of First Peter has been talking about several different things. It's said in verse 22 that you've purified your souls by your obedience to the truth. And then you've believed the word of God. You've been born again by it, verse 23. Been born again, not by perishable seed, but of imperishable. That borning, that birth, the birth, the new birth, let me... Get the word straight. The new birth in verse 3 is something that God does to us. He causes us to be born again. And then at the end of the chapter 1, it says, This word is the good news that was preached to you. So the word is not just the word of God in general, but the good news of Jesus Christ. And so then in chapter 2, these people need to put away malice and deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander. And they need to desire the spiritual milk so they can grow up into salvation. And it says, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. He's assuming that they have. They've tasted that the Lord is good. They've tasted and they've believed the word. So now they're coming to him. They come to him because they've tasted that he is good. They've believed the word. So all of this is backdrop for preparation of being a holy priest. You have tasted that God is good. You are coming to him. And the word coming to him is a similar term to the idea of drawing near. Similar Greek term. Drawing near has a lot of meaning in it. We draw near to hear God speak in Deuteronomy 5, 27. We draw near to offer sacrifices in Leviticus 9, verse 7. We draw near to worship and pray. Hebrews 4, 16, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. So when we're coming to him, we're drawing near in worship to the cornerstone. We're receiving life from it. When we come to this cornerstone, verse 5, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house. There's a present tense aspect here. You're continually being built up. You're continually coming to Christ. The results of coming to Christ is that we become living stones, receiving life from Christ, modeling Christ. He's the living stone, and we're living like living stones. We become what Christ is, in a sense. We're modeling him. And we become part of his body, the body of Christ. Now, 
in the context of a spiritual house, of a temple, the building of the temple, this happens corporately. You need lots of stones to make a temple, not just one stone. You need a lot of them. 1 Kings 5 said, in verse 17, At the king's command they quarried out great costly stones in order to lay the foundation of the house with dressed stones. Those stones could not be chiseled out on the site of the temple. It had to be away from the temple. There couldn't be any noise of a hammer on the site of the temple because it was holy ground. And so there's this special costly construction of all of these stones and then they're brought in. And we're one of those stones in a sense. Nehemiah chapter 4 Verse 2, there's some of the people of that day kind of ridiculing the Jews and ridiculing what Nehemiah is trying to do in rebuilding Jerusalem. And they say, what are these feeble Jews doing? Will they revive the stones out of the heaps of rubbish? So the picture is there's a bunch of stones laying there, and that's what Nehemiah did. They really didn't have the resources to go cut a whole bunch of new stones. They picked up the dead stones, and they put them back in the wall. And the word used to do that is revive, bring them back to life. Are they going to bring them back to life? That may be a little bit behind the idea of us being living stones, us being made new, turned back alive, our dead cold hearts of stone revived into living stones. And then these stones get their order and structure from being placed on the cornerstone. The whole point of a cornerstone was to be able to align all the other stones so that there was some purpose and plan and design architecturally for the building. And so the cornerstone and the foundation was the most important piece. And we're coming to him, a stone, as another stone to be placed on top of him, to find our place within the superstructure that depends upon Christ. We're coming to him. And then the spiritual house builds a temple. It is for the indwelling of the Shekinah glory. It is for the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. And it says that it is being built up. And in the New Testament, there is, in the Bible, there's this concept of the temple expanding and growing. Um, We believe that in the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve were to expand the borders and continue to make God's place of order and provision expanded through the whole world. They failed at that mission. Israel had a similar calling to expand the temple. And Ezekiel prophesies a great, enormously humongous temple. And then finally in Revelation 22, 21, we see a temple that's 1,500 miles cubed, the dimensions of the Holy of Holies on a grand scale That is the new creation. The whole earth turned into a temple where the knowledge of God will cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. So this growing of the temple is personified by the growing together and the expanding of God's church over the world. Christ knits together the individual stones into a living habitation for the Spirit. We don't have time to read them, but Ephesians 2 19 through 22 talks about how he took Gentiles and Jews together, made them one new man. And I'll just, I guess I will read one, a couple of those verses. It says, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. And then in chapter 4, it talks about being part of the body of Christ and having the life-flowing vitality come from the head, which would be similar to the cornerstone from the head down to the members. So we do this as a body together, corporately. We're becoming a house for God. And then we come to Christ continually in order to grow strong. We're coming continually Wayne Grudem gives the sense of the passage as this, As you keep on coming to Christ in worship and prayer and praise, you are continually being built up into a spiritual temple, 
a place in which God more and more fully dwells. So drawing life from our worship of Christ and being strengthened as part of the body of Christ, we are prepared now for understanding our sacred duties. We've been prepared to be a holy priesthood. So let's look at what those priestly duties are. But before we do, we have to explore what the text tells us, that there's a peril. There's a peril for holy priests. Verse 7 and verse 8. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. So this cornerstone was rejected by the builders. Psalm 118.22 is the quotation in verse 7. Jesus applied that to himself and said, the leaders of Israel are rejecting me as the cornerstone. But yet the cornerstone really is chosen and precious and was really vital. And so for those who reject the cornerstone, it becomes a stumbling stone. So Jesus is despised by the world, but truly precious. And for those in in verse 6, it says, whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Those who do not believe will be put to shame. And in the Hebrew, it says be put to, made to have haste, meaning they're going to be attacked. They're not going to be protected in a fight. They're going to be put to flight. They're going to be fleeing. There's no security if you reject the cornerstone. But not only that, <clears throat> if you reject the cornerstone, it becomes a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. Verse 8. That's from Isaiah 8. 14 and 15, and it says, A stone of offense and a rock of stumbling to both houses of Israel, a trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. Many shall stumble on it. They shall fall and be broken. They shall be snared and taken. Peter explains why they stumble. Why they stumble is because they do not believe, verse 7, And they disobey the word, verse 8. So they do not believe and they disobey the word. The consequences of not believing, the consequences of not obeying the gospel message is a stumbling, an offense, being taken, being snared, being put to flight, being shamed. And all of this, the text goes there, so we have to go there. It says this is as they were destined to do. So what does that mean? Well, in contrast to those who disobey who are destined to do that, you are a chosen race. So there is a contrast. One group is chosen and the other group is destined. So what does that mean? Well, some take the destined to refer to the fact that if you disobey, stumbling happens. And so that is what's destined, the consequences for disobeying. That's definitely true, but the text seems to go beyond that. And it says they were destined. People were destined, not the consequence, but the people. So what do we make of this little throwaway line. It's there for a reason. So first of all, Scripture does not blame God for the unbelief of people. But God is able to use unbelief and even to destine that it happens to accomplish his purpose. Case in point is Judas Iscariot. God knew it was going to happen. He allowed it to happen. He used it to his plan. He, He overcame the evil in that sense. He's not responsible for it, but he chose that it would happen. And this also, in the context, is intended to be a comfort to the Christians in First Peter. They're being slandered against. They're being insulted. Some of them can see not too far on the horizon the fires of Nero. We believe these Christians... Um, were being written to by Peter who was in Rome, who was seeing Nero doing what he was doing. So this persecution element 
They were having family turn on them. They were having partners in work turn on them. They were losing their livelihoods. What do they do? How do they make sense of this? God knows. God destined. God determines. The text also leaves open the possibility that some of this group that don't believe right now may eventually believe. It doesn't give us their ultimate final destiny. But one thing that Wayne Grudem will emphasize and what I see in Scripture too is that God's election of some to eternal life and the passing over of others to is never viewed in the same way in Scripture. Election to salvation is cause for rejoicing and praise to God. Even in 1 Peter, it says, Blessed be God who caused you to be born again. And previously it talks about them being elect exiles. God elected them. And in other passages, Ephesians 1, 3 through 6, it praises God how everything works according to his will. And he chose us in Christ to be saints, to be um, heirs of God. Titus 1, 1 and 2, there's many passages. But reprobation, the passing over of those who are not chosen and justly leaving them in their rebellion is viewed as something which brings God's sorrow, not delight. Ezekiel 33, 1, and Paul echoes that in Romans 9, 1 and 2. So there is a difference in how Scripture talks about this. But it is here. So we've dwelt on the peril for a couple reasons. First, the peril applies to us. Some of us here in this congregation could stumble on the stone if we don't continue to believe. The Bible in 1 Peter warns us of that. It says in verse 9 of chapter 1, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. It says in verse 5, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation ready to be revealed. So you have to have faith to the end to be able to have salvation realized. It's by faith alone, but it's a faith that endures. One passage which explains this and is one of the sober warnings that I'm thinking of is Colossians 1, 21 to 23. It says, And you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard. So, I didn't write those words. God did. If indeed you continue. And some of us have known people or can think of people who used to believe from an outward standpoint, from a human judgment, they believed, and then they stopped believing. So what are we to make of that? Well, if you don't continue in faith, we can't apply these wonderful promises to you. And that's a warning to all of us. And in fact, Hebrews chapter 3, verses 12 and 13 says that we should warn one another and exhort each other every day, lest there be in us an evil heart of unbelief. So one of the remedies to this peril is staying connected to the superstructure, staying part of the body, staying in the temple and receiving the blessing from one another. So that's one reason why I mention this peril. The other reason is that the text tells us this. And the third reason is that some of us here are frustrated by the unbelief of others. We are threatened by it. We feel betrayed by it. Or we're suffering slander. We're suffering from other people's unbelief. We're suffering insults. It may be deep hurts. Um, we, we are exposed and we're threatened. If I stand up for what I know, Christ tells me to, I'm going to lose privilege at work. The text is here to teach us that unbelief is not outside the plan of God. 
And so we need to rest in God's plan, rest in God's goodness and leave it with him. In stark contrast to these warnings, we then kind of flip the switch in verse 9 and we see some of the greatest promises in Scripture. Incredible privilege now for holy priests. So holy priests, we are given amazing privileges. So first of all, in verse 7, we get a hint of this. The honor is for you who believe. So there's an honor. There's a privilege. And then in verse 9, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Before we get into the specifics of these, a real quick background point. The recipients of Peter's letter include Gentiles and Jewish Christians. Gentile Christians, we see from the fact that in verse 3 of chapter 4, the time that has passed suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do. Verse 4, they're surprised that you're not living like a Gentile. No Gentile would be surprised that a Jew was not living like a Gentile, but they would be surprised that the other Gentiles were not living like Gentiles. Chapter 1, verse 14, says that they had former ignorance. In verse 18, they had futile ways for their fathers. So there is a Gentile nature of the recipients of the letter. And secondly, so there's both Gentiles and Jews who are Christians, are receiving these special privileges. Secondly, the terms were used specifically for Israel in the Old Testament as God's specific people. And then these terms are prophesied to be re-given to Israel because they could lose this if they weren't faithful. And they did lose that. Hosea said, you were my people, but now you're going to be named not my people because they had so forsaken God. So then Isaiah... 43 prophesies that God's going to recover them and, and call them by those same names again. So Isaiah 43, 20 and 21, among other places, says that God's going to do what he did before in the Exodus and recover his people. And then we put it all together in the New Testament, those prophecies about I'm going to recover you, give you that special privilege again, they are given to the church. So in some way, maybe not a full way, but in some way, the restoration of God's people in the Old Testament comes to fruition in the wonder of the church, the mystery of godliness, the Jew and Gentile together, given this great privilege. So with that in mind, you're a chosen race. The chosen people of God, Israel, right? Well, here, it's the church, the chosen race, even the race I mean, these are Gentiles. Their race is not chosen. But God says, no, it is chosen. I'm giving you to be my chosen race. Isaiah 40, 20, I give water to my chosen people, the people who I formed for myself, that they might declare my praise. Deuteronomy 10, yet the Lord set his heart and love on your fathers and chose their offspring after them, you above all peoples. So he chose them. And why did he choose them? In Deuteronomy, it says, not because you were more numerous than other people, not because of your righteousness did God choose you, ultimately because of his glory. He wanted to have his name be heard among the nations. So just as Israel was specially chosen, the church now is God's special people now in this age. Then he says, you're a royal priesthood. Exodus 19, 5 and 6. If you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all the peoples. For all the earth is mine. You shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are specific terms for Israel. A kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Here, Peter says, you are a royal priesthood. In Revelation 1, 6 John, speaking of all the church, Jew and Gentile, both said, God made us a kingdom, priest to his God and Father. See also Revelation 5.10. So the royal priesthood applies to the church of God. Now, the nation of Israel altogether were supposed to be priests, not just Levi, 
but all of them, they had a role to play, to image God's name among the nations. He placed them in the center of the world where all the central uh, trade routes went. They were supposed to image his name. That job now is the churches. We're supposed to image the name of God. We're supposed to be his priests here on earth. They're a holy nation as well. So in a sense, our nationality is not American or German or British or whatever the case may be. Our nationality is heavenly. That's where our citizenship is. We're a holy nation. And our, our uh, allegiance should be first to our heavenly country, our holy nation. The Jehovah's Witnesses are wrong on many things. They don't believe in pledging allegiance to the flag. Excessive. But there is a modicum of truth in that one statement. Really, we should have a greater allegiance to the Christian flag than we should to our own national flag. The church is transnational. And Jesus Christ is our true king. So then it says, a people for God's own possession. We saw that in Exodus 19 already. My treasured possession. Deuteronomy 7, 6. You are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession. Out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. So the idea of a people for your own possession is kind of like a king would have his own special um, crypt, his special like treasure store just for his own use, not for the national treasury, but for his own benefit. And God says, you're for my own benefit. I love you and I want you specially. And then Hosea 1 and 2, we won't read all of that, but that's behind verse 10. Once you were not a people, now you are God's people. Once you did not have mercy, now you do. Hosea even named his children not mercy and not my people as a witness to the Israelites that God was removing his favor from them. And then here, he's restoring it. And in Hosea, he prophesied he would restore it. But he's obviously in context restoring it, including the Gentiles too. And how much more applicable is it to Gentiles that we were not God's people, but now we are. We had not mercy, but now we do. Ephesians 2, similar. Once you were strangers and aliens to the commonwealth, but now you are members of it. You're one new man in Christ, a new church of God. So how do we need to look to the purpose of this. This is great theology here, great privilege, but what's it all for? This is just a Sunday school lesson um, with lots of facts to memorize. Um, How is this really better than a Super Bowl here? Well, let's look at the purpose of all of this, the purpose of being holy priests. There's two main purposes and one additional one um, that I get from outside of our verses. First one is worship. We see that in verse 5. So you're, you're a holy priesthood, to, or in order to, the purpose of, offer spiritual sacrifices. So when you came to church today, were were you intending to offer spiritual sacrifices? Because that is really one way we should think about church. The purpose of being a holy priest is to worship. The other purpose is to witness. And that's in verse 9. He made you a people for his own possession, a royal priesthood, why? That, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into light. So there is a witness that is part of being a priest. And then finally, we'll see that another purpose of being a priest is to withstand. We'll get to that in a minute. But first of all, for the worship piece, and I apologize, I'm packing too much content in here. Let me just read through some of the ideas of what it means to worship, what kinds of sacrifices. And before I do, reminder that all these sacrifices, if we gave them ourselves, they would be totally worthless. God would say, dirty rags, get out of here, that's ridiculous, that you would offer a prayer to me, you lowlife. That gift is just 
horrible. What are you doing? No, instead, we're offering spiritual sacrifices that are acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Because of Jesus Christ, all of these things that we can offer as priests are acceptable. Without Jesus Christ, the true nature of our dirty heart would be exposed. And God would not accept anything that we would do. So worship, spiritual sacrifices, what do we have? Well, first of all, personal devotion and holiness. Romans 12.1, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. Fundamentally, as a priest, you devote yourself to God. And that's what we should do. Our body can be a living sacrifice, which means that our uh, period of worship does not end in 10 minutes. It means that it doesn't ever end because we are a continually offered sacrifice in the morning and in the evening, like in the temple, every single day forever. That's what our life should be. Confession of sin. Psalm 51, 17. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart. Personal worship, Hebrews 12, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. Praise, Hebrews 13, 15, let us continually offer a sacrifice of praise to God that is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Prayer, Psalm 141, 2, let my prayer be counted as incense before you. And the lifting up of my hands is the evening sacrifice. Faith, Philippians 2, 17, the sacrificial offering of your faith. Thanksgiving and song, Psalm 107, 22, let them offer sacrifices of thanksgiving and tell of his deeds in songs of joy. Love, Hosea 6, 6, I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice. Knowing God, Hosea 6, 6b, the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. Giving to spread the gospel. Philippians 4.18 talks about that. How the gifts given to Paul to be a missionary were seen as sacrifices. Good deeds and sharing possessions. Hebrews 13.16. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have. For such sacrifices are pleasing to God. Micah 6, 6 through 8 also talks about how uh, doing right by others is so pivotal, like sacrifices. Finally, as a church, communion is the one feast in the new temple. Hebrews 13, we have an altar from which those who serve the tent or the tabernacle have no right to eat. There's a special communion festivity that we get to celebrate as the body of Christ. And all of this worship is done together. Yes, it's done individually in your heart, but it's done together in the context of being a priesthood, a company of priests, all part of one body. We bring more glory to God by worshiping together. And then witness. So the witness includes kind of two elements. Proclamation includes having an answer. First uh, Peter 3.15 says, um, In your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you of a reason for the hope that is in you. You do it with gentleness and respect. And along with that, I'm saying not just an answer, but also a verbal witness to other people. But proclamation also includes living as a testimony. And in uh, 1 Peter 2, 12, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you, they may see your good deeds and glorify God. All of that is part of this idea of proclaiming the excellencies. We proclaim by our lifestyle as well as by our lips. And then finally, we withstand. Being a priesthood allows you to go out from the temple and withstand the, the elements around you. And Peter wanted to do this for these people to show them how special their place was because he knew how hard the fiery trial was that was beginning to surprise them. And not just a few years later, some of them would be hounded to death. And so they had to know how to withstand 
against the evil. In chapter 5, they had to know how to resist the devil who walks about as a roaring lion. So the holy priests are priests together and for one another. The church stands stronger together. And individually, you will fail without the strength that is designed by God to come through the house where each stone helps the next. The world will slander and insult. The flesh will wage war against your soul, verse 11. There will be persecution, chapter 4, verse 12. But it just lasts for a little while. Chapter 1, verse 6 and 5, verse 10, you suffer a little while. And in the context of our life, our life is just a little while too. Suffering is for a little while. But worship can last forever. The spiritual life that flows from our coming to Christ and staying in communion with him and with each other can enable us to avoid the peril before us and endure to the end in this evil age. In conclusion, we've covered a lot of ground and yet only scratched the surface of what is here in this text. I hope you can come away from this with something that is good news for you. Jesus is the living stone and he knits us together into a living body of Christ that is a spiritual house to be indwelled by the Holy Spirit. He has given us a great and holy mission. We are privileged to be God's chosen people. We are kings and priests. We are holy. We are God's special possession that is treasured. We were not God's people, but have been mercifully made his people. We were in darkness, but have been called into marvelous light. This should give us something lasting to rejoice about. No matter what role we have in the church, no matter how hard the road might seem that we are called to follow at this stage in our lives, we can find meaningfully priestly work to do. We can be informed by the truth of our privileged status and the life-giving stone. We can purpose to offer our body and perform sacrifices worthy of our God. We can witness to his glory. We can withstand the adversary and his fiery trials. May God grant us an increased measure of his Holy Spirit, and may we live out this message together as the church of Christ. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, Lord, I need this message as much as anyone, Lord. Unbelief is a temptation to my soul. And Lord, it hurts all of us. Lord, I need to be reminded of who I am in Christ and what resources there are in the living stone. Lord, I pray that you would be exalted in our hearts and lives, that you would raise us up build us up, that we would be continually coming to you and taking advantage of what resources you have, the means of grace through your church. Lord, that I would be coming to you personally and worship more and more, that all of us would, Lord, that we would live out the purpose of being a priesthood, that we would be amazed and awed and wondered at the privileges given to us. Lord, we ask ultimately that you, our high priest, would receive glory and honor today. In Jesus' name, amen.